Welcome to PNC C-Speak, the language of executives. I'm Carol Daniel, alongside Michael Scully, regional president of PNC. Each podcast features local and regional C-level executives talking about relevant and timely business topics. This knowledge sharing platform provides insights on forward thinking business approaches that disrupt the status quo and encourage business leaders to think differently. Today, Mike and I welcome Aaron Joy, founder and CEO of Black Dress Circle. So excited to talk to you, Aaron. Welcome and let me say that I know you and you know me. And what I know about you is that you are elevating women all over the St. Louis region as an executive coach. Can you start us off by explaining exactly what Black Dress Circle is. Yes. And Carol, thank you. So good to see you. Black Dress Circle is a business consulting and coaching organization focused on women entrepreneurs. So we work with women entrepreneurs, everything from a startup company that has a brand new revenue and might only ever have $100,000 in revenue to companies who go public, uh, companies with five to 10 to $20 million annual revenue and everything in between. Aaron, picking up on that theme, I, I think one of my favorite quotes, and I've used it many times, is from Warren Buffett, that the best days of the US are ahead of us because we've been operating for the generations before our time with only with one arm behind our back. So talk about that a little bit and how maybe the the uh, women leaders in our our industries and captains of industries and CEOs of companies have evolved say causing you to pursue your passion here yeah it's such an interesting thing i think thinking about and talking about women in the workforce and my company about 10 years ago got super focused on women entrepreneurs you can see that even in the name of our company black dress circle um, we are highly focused on women entrepreneurs, and that is because they are under-supported. Uh, women executives, women entrepreneurs have to work a little harder to pull the right opportunities, the right mentoring, the right resources to them. They have to kind of cut through all of the noise and the clutter in a way that male entrepreneurs don't. And so I think that the future ahead of us, to your quote, uh, Michael, I think that the, the future ahead of us is brighter because there are more women already a couple of steps ahead of us who are paving the way for other women entrepreneurs, other women executives to step into the space that they've created. And we know that that matters, that people, specifically women, making room for other women is one of the many strategies that we can use to advance women in the workplace. Now, what men can do, and this might be a little controversial, I'm, I can't believe I'm even saying that, that it could be a little controversial, but it is. Men can do more work in the household to support women's abilities to advance their businesses and their careers. There's research that shows that women do significantly more caretaking of their home, their families, their aging parents, elderly, sick, sick family members. And that is a drag on women's abilities to do what they want to do to reach their professional goals. Erin, talk about women who are in those leadership positions 
that find themselves in in some high growth industries, high growth arenas, and, and more about what you just said about women paving the way. I was at your recent networking event, and and I really did get to see this in effect. You know, women in high growth areas really having conversations with one another and helping one another to see more for themselves. So, so talk about what that looks like for those women in those leadership positions. Well, they have a very uh, special and privileged position that they earned by being in those higher profile uh, roles. And one of the things that women at that level can do is create additional opportunities. Women get a bad rap for being competitive among other women. And that can, what the research shows is that that competition comes out when there are only a limited number of seats available at the top. So yeah, I might be overly competitive and shove out another woman if there's one seat available and I want it and I earned it and I know that I deserve it. But if there's multiple seats available at the top and it's not just a room of, let's say, 11 men and one woman, which is a lot of corporate organizations today, um, There is it creates a healthier organization. Why would we care about a healthier organization? Because they financially outperform the less diverse organizations. So organizations that have more diversity at the top on their boards in terms of gender and ethnicity and race, those companies outperform the more homogenous organizations. So there's a bottom line impact here. So Aaron, I'm curious if we're making progress here. So if you look at the many traditional peer mentoring programs, and I'm talking about YPO, Vistage, and others like that, they have always historically been male. What changes are you seeing in this landscape? Yeah, I love those organizations. They are so beneficial. That peer-to-peer -peer learning is you know, proven in the academic research to support executives and entrepreneurs in reaching their goals. And I think the progress we're making is that if you go to those organizations, and I, I know people, you know, leading those, uh, those peer organizations, you do see more women in those organizations than you ever did before, whether it's an entrepreneurial organization or a more corporate executive focused organization. That's not to say that there's not further to go. You know, I would love to see those groups have women only programs so that I'm not sitting in a round table with 11 men and I'm the one woman sitting around the table and these are my, my peers, but they're only my male peers. So there's further to go and we've made great progress so far. Aaron, I heard a recent story of a woman, and I read this in the Business Journal, a woman took her CPA to meet with her banker to go over her loan application to expand her business that was already making hundreds of thousands of dollars. The banker went to her CPA and said, nice to meet you. I've been waiting to meet you. He thought the CPA was the business owner, um, not the woman. Talk about... Um, access to capital for women entrepreneurs. We hear great stories and then we hear some horror stories. 
what are you hearing and what are you telling as a coach for your clients? Well, first and foremost, a relationship with a bank is critical. And that's true whether you're a high-performing executive or you are a new or established entrepreneur. It's about having a legitimate relationship with your banker. And that's something I'm certain PNC does because I hear about that out in the marketplace, out in the community. And so in terms of the women and access to capital, it is a topic that I do think is misunderstood in that a lot of women-owned organizations, you know, never would be the kinds of companies that would be accessing capital regardless. If you've got a small pet grooming business or a daycare or a professional services organization, you may not need the kind of access to capital that I think people mean when they often talk about the topic. You know, if I'm going to the bank for a big bank loan, or if I am going to pitch my company to venture capital or private equity, um, there's a lot of gender bias in all of those uh, activities, like you're just pointing to, Carol. And so I think that. As a business owner, we have to be prepared to go into those conversations regardless of whether we're male or female. And do women need to be a little more prepared? It sounds like it. There's some research that talks about the uh, the gender bias in um, pitching for venture capital specifically. And even the questions that the investors ask are different for men versus women. They tend to ask men more future-focused questions. What is their vision? What do they see as possible for this company? And investors tend to ask women more downside, risk-focused questions. How are you going to uh, handle this challenge that is likely to come your way? So if the entire system is biased, I think what women need to do is know that. And deal with it in a powerful way, not be a victim of that bias or that infrastructure, but have the best plan for how you're going to go compete. Unless you are taking on the venture capital, private equity, and banking system, then your best bet is be prepared. Do the best you possibly can. Go be powerful. Don't be a victim of the system. Aaron, I, I hear that loud and clear, and I think uh, gender bias is real, both real and... and um, right, you know, and imagined, that, right? Yes. Yeah, that or unconscious bias. But to what extent do you think it's an evolution? So it's only been in our recent history that women have started to lead men, for example, as college graduates. Women are leading men in engineering fields, legal fields, medical fields. And it's becoming quite a, a stark contrast. So what... So I'm curious, do you think this is just an evolution and that we're getting there and it just took took this evolution of women in the workplace and in the educational institutions to, to make it happen? Yeah, I think it's a really fair way to look at it. And I agree with you that we are in an evolution. We have not evolved. And we know that from the gender pay gap. Leading into the pandemic, the unemployment rate was equal between men and women. At the tail end of the pandemic, let's call this the tail end, the, the unemployment numbers are higher for women than for men. And that is related to those caretaking duties that we talked about. So while there is this bias that we were just referencing and it is starting to evolve out of companies a bit, 
there's a long way to go because it's it, it harkens back to what might be seen as a traditional female role in the household. And so I think there's work for women to do to disrupt that. But I think there's just as much, maybe more work for men to do. And I do think that the younger generations are much more um, evolved to your, to your point, Mike, and they are going to pave the way in the space that, you know, our generations have set. They are going to take things to the next level. They are the next big group of leaders, millennials, second largest generation in the workforce ever. And they are now coming into their own. They're in their late thirties and they are the leaders. And so I think that they are going to pick up where we are leaving off and join us in the fight for equal pay. Aaron, are you finding that the um, worker shortage that we are all dealing with, whether you are shopping in a store or going to a restaurant, are you finding that that's helping or hurting women in terms of the gender pay gap? I don't know yet. Uh, I, I've, I've actually been researching that and looking into that. I, I, I've mixed I've mixed kind of um, intuitive hits about it and uh, initial thoughts about it in that on one hand, if there are fewer women in the workplace, there theoretically would be driving up the pay. We have, you know, employers use compensation to attract talent. We have a very competitive uh, hiring market right now, as I think everyone knows. And so in that case, women and men, but employees hold more power. So sure, we could possibly drive the rates up if the women are empowered to ask for it, if women are empowered to negotiate for it. So we can possibly drive those rates up. But is it, the question I have is, is it sustainable? Is it a fluke that is not systemic enough, that it's not um, really transforming that bias. And so while there may be a, uh, an uptick, and I think there will be because employees hold the power and they can, they can drive some rates up, um, I think as that uptick happens, I wonder how it will play out over time. And will it take hold and be sustainable or is it a fluke? Aaron, I'm, I'm curious. I, I love your point of view here, but say a lot of businesses are started because somebody works for another business and they think they can build a better mousetrap. So they go off on their own. So if you're that entrepreneur and say you're in your, your 30s, you're that female entrepreneur, what one or two things should that person be doing to best prepare themselves for success? Oh man, there's two things that come to mind right away that relate to this conversation. The first is what I said earlier around having partners, a banking partner a legal partner, uh, a business consultant and coach to really help you make sure that that idea that you have to make a better mousetrap, that it is well vetted, that you're doing strategic analysis to understand where your business fits in the entire uh, external environment that you're working in. So I think the first thing is surrounding yourself with partners and creating a supportive peer environment. Going back to those organizations you mentioned earlier, Mike, working with someone like me, joining Vistage or EO or YPO or any of these amazing organizations that support entrepreneurs and some executives. I think the second thing I would be focused on as a woman entrepreneur starting a new business is well-being. 
And it's a topic that pandemic is bringing to the forefront even more, our self-care, our well-being. My area of research as a PhD candidate in business psychology is well-being and success among women entrepreneurs. My hypothesis after 26 years in business and being a third generation female entrepreneur and working with women entrepreneurs all day, every day, and studying women entrepreneurs at the PhD level is that as we expand our well-being, happiness, self-care, life satisfaction, sleep, quality relationships, uh, financial health, mental health, emotional health, I could go on and on, that as we focus there, we create the conditions for success in our businesses. What is the point of having a great business or a great career if your life isn't great? If you don't have a great life, what is the point? And so I would be focusing on those partnerships in my community, and I'd be focusing on seeing my girlfriends, doing yoga, going to church, gardening, the things that, give, that make me who I am and give my life meaning. And I fuel all of that energy and passion into my business. I'm so excited to hear the answer to this question, Erin, before we let you go. I heard you had a word one word for 2022. I am so ready to hear it. One word for 2022 is ownership. So it's kind of a strange word. My word of the year last year was unleashed, unleashing myself. And as I have unleashed myself, and I think a lot of people have unleashed themselves in pandemic, I am now focused on taking ownership, taking psychological ownership over who I am becoming. And to do that, I and we have to let go of the past. We can let go of the past as an organization. We can let go of the past as an individual. And we can lean into who we are becoming. And to me, that's ownership. Owning who we already are, who I already am. And I'm just clearing the way and paving the path, getting everything out of my way to own it. I am joining you in that one. Ownership in 2022. Thank you so much, Aaron Joy, founder and CEO of Black Dress Circle, for joining Michael Scully and me for this episode of PNCC Speak, the language of executives.